Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free. Those of you who are family around here, that'll be no new news to you. But those of you who might be guests or visiting from out of town or in from the neighborhood, we're excited that you're with us. And uh, we're in the middle of an ongoing study in the book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible this morning, there's some in the seatbacks in front of you. Or uh, even better, we've got these uh, Genesis journals. You can grab one of those in the lobby if you don't have one already. Uh, but that's just a great way both to follow along in our ongoing study, but it also gives you the ability to kind of record questions you have. And in a chapter like this one, there may be all kinds of questions, uh, questions you have, things that God has said to you, things you want to remember. There's, there's a great sort of tool there to be able to record some of those things. So we hope you'll utilize that and grab one of those Genesis journals. If you don't already have one, for those of you who are joining us at home, uh, we see you, we love you. We're glad that you're with us via live stream or maybe watching even later in the week. We know these are kind of crazy times. Some of you might be sick or you might have family members who are sick or whatever. We're praying for lots of different people in our community and around the world. World, I want you to know that we love you and we see you, and we're praying that you'll be healthy and able to get back here and join us in person as soon as possible. But uh, but we're excited that you're with us, and we do feel a connection with you even remotely. So we're we're excited that you're there. As we get into Genesis 25, the section that we read uh, is a section that's right in the middle, and we're going to get there. But before we look at the section further down with some of this narrative section, I want to begin by reading the first 18 verses, which uh, you might initially find uh, hard to sort of digest. They're not necessarily narrative. They sort of catch us up on a couple of things. The verses there in the first 18 uh, are going to both tell us about the death of Abraham. They're going to also tell us about one of Abraham's concubines, a woman named Keturah. Uh, they're also going to tell us about Ishmael. Now remember one of Abraham's sons, his first son, Ishmael, who was not the child of promise, but was the child of Abraham and Hagar. Uh, he is a uh, God had promised to bless him as well. And so it's going to tell us a little bit about his descendants. And you may look at this and go like, this is just a list of names. Like, why does it matter? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to absorb the fact that these aren't fictional characters, right? This isn't myth. Uh, This isn't fantasy. We're not reading a novelization. This is an actual historical account of people who walked with God and lived with him. And in that, in recognizing that these are not fictional accounts, uh, we also recognize that these people have strengths and weaknesses. One of the themes we've seen again and again in our study of Genesis is that these characters that God has this covenant with, these people that God has a covenant with, like us, both have great moments and they have kind of crummy moments. And that might discourage you. Maybe you want to come to the Bible and just read the stories of heroes who are heroic at every moment and never make a mistake and never do anything that's kind of uh, uh, worth sort of covering up. That, that's not who they are. And I don't find that discouraging. I actually find that encouraging because knowing human nature and knowing my own self, I got really high points and I got really low points. I got moments where I do things you'd be really proud of and I got moments where I should have done it different. And the people that are walking with God in the pages of Scripture are no different than the people who are walking with God here in Fullerton or Placentia or Bray or wherever you live. They're no different than us. And so I would hope that as we read it, you would take some encouragement from seeing God's overarching purpose, even in the midst of using broken people. So let's just read these verses together and kind of look at it. It says in verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Maiden, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letishim, and Lumshim. Lum, Lumim? How about that? There we go. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. 
But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. It might be troubling to you that Abraham had a concubine. Or as it says there in the plural, concubines. I find that troubling. I would have loved it for Abraham to have been a faithful man to his one wife, just to Sarah, and have had descendants just through her. But that is not the story we've seen. Now that doesn't mean that, that God endorses multiple wives, but it is indicative of the time period in which he lived. And what it's telling us is that Abraham was kind and generous to all of his descendants, even though he paid special attention to the child of promise, the child Isaac, right? It's telling us, by the way, this isn't chronological. So when we think about this, this isn't that Abraham had another wife at, you know, whatever he was, 120 years old after Sarah died. What it's telling us is that somewhere along the way, he had concubines in addition to Sarah. So I don't want you to think of this as chronological in in any of this case, because it's just sort of giving us a broad view. Verse 7 says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, after the death of Abraham. God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai. Roy. So we know uh, it'll tell us in the section we're studying today a little bit further that uh, Isaac and Rebekah, they had their child, their children, their twins, they had them when Jacob was 60. We know that Jacob, excuse me, they, when Isaac was 60. We know that Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. So if Abraham died at 175, you can do the math and recognize that Abraham was alive for at least the first 15 years of Jacob and Esau's life. Does that make sense? That's how we know this first section is not chronological, okay? Because he lived to be 175, but when Isaac was 60, he had these twins. We'll get there in a second. I just want you to see the timeline a little bit. The primary thing you want to take away from that section we just read is that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled back again at Beer Lahai Roy. So what we see here is not only that Abraham blessed his son Isaac, but also that God's blessing upon Abraham, Isaac, and his descendants, the result of that ongoing family covenant, passed on to Isaac as well at the death of Abraham. Let's read on. Verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar. Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Mesa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by the villages, uh, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. Now it's interesting to note as we're thinking about the story of God's covenant with these people. That God had a covenant with Abraham, but that that was God's sovereign choice. He chose Abraham, not because Abraham was necessarily worthy, not because he was particularly faithful to one woman, not because he was particularly faithful even to God at various points in his life, but by God's sovereign choice, he set up this covenant. This was his purpose with Abraham, and he remained faithful to that. And not only to Abraham, but as he had promised to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants. So we see the faithfulness of God in this story. But it might be interesting even just to note, as I was reading the story, I thought it was very interesting that Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, not the child of promise, 
It's interesting that Ishmael had 12 sons. It's very fruitful, right? He has 12 sons. It's a pretty large, a large family. And with God saying to Abraham, hey, I'm going to enlarge your family and I'm going to give you all these descendants and I'm going to bless you and multiply. You're going to be the father of many nations. You may have recognized some different nation names, even in the names of some of these descendants. But it's interesting maybe to note that Ishmael, who was not the child of promise, had all kinds of descendants. And Isaac, who was the child of promise, didn't have any descendants for the first 20 years of his life. We just have soaked that up for a second and think about the way in which God moves throughout history. Think about the way that God moves among his people, because many times the way that God is moving doesn't necessarily line up with what makes logical sense to us. If you were God, for instance, and you wanted to bless Abraham and make him the father of many nations, and you knew in advance that Ishmael was going to have 12 children, but that Isaac might not have any because Rebekah was barren, you might have thought to yourself, well, it'd be better to go with the guy that is a little more fruitful, right? But not so with God. God's not worried about the way that humans perceive things. He's not worried about the natural way of things. He's not worried about the natural order of things. God, God loves to work in the midst of weakness. So after telling us that Ishmael had 12 sons and they settled from here to here, that they're this great and mighty nation themselves, it then goes on to tell us that Isaac and Rebekah, whose story we looked at a little bit last week, that Isaac and Rebekah for the first 20 years of their marriage had no children. It says in verse 19... These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I want you to see here, after we read this romantic story last week of Abraham's servant going and finding Rebekah among the descendants of Abraham's family, he brings Rebekah back. It's this beautiful story. Remember, she spots him from a distance. She puts on her veil. They get married. And Isaac is comforted after the loss of his mother. And you might think, here we are seeing the hand of God's providence. We're seeing the blessing of God upon Isaac. Now he's got a wife from his own family and not from the Canaanite women, just like Abraham wanted. And so it seems like with the blessing of God upon them, that everything should be sunshine and rainbows, right? That if the blessing of God is upon them and if God is with them and he's made them a covenant and a promise, if God is faithful and good, that Isaac and Rebekah would get married and everything would just be rosy from then on. And the only reason I assume you might think that is because I think we think that in our lives today, don't we? We sort of have this assumption that if you show up here at 919 or, you know, whatever, 925 on a Sunday morning, That if you show up here on a Sunday morning and you do all the right things and you say all the right things and you look a certain way, that if you check all the right boxes, then everything will be sunshine and rainbows for you. I want you to notice here in Genesis 25, and this isn't the only place this is true, but that even along the lines of the people whose lives that God has blessed and who has covenanted with, that not everything's easy. That there are moments of deep confusion. What it tells us here is that Abraham, or excuse me, that Isaac and Rebekah were barren for 20 years. She doesn't get pregnant until they've been married for 20 years. What it also tells us is that, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now what it doesn't tell us, and you can fill in this blank however you want, it doesn't tell us whether Isaac prayed once at the end of 20 years. I think that's probably unlikely. That after 20 years of barrenness, of hoping to have a children, of believing God's promise that he was going to make them fruitful and multiply them and make them a father of many nations, he was going to bless the whole earth through their line. 
I find it difficult to believe that after 19 years, that maybe then Isaac thought, well, I should pray. I think it's probably more likely, knowing the story of Abraham and knowing that for some of those years, actually all of those years of barrenness, Abraham was right there. He was an old man, but he was right there. I imagine that Isaac was probably praying regularly that his wife would conceive. He was probably praying daily, if not hourly, right? Going before God and saying, hey, you made this promise to us. You made this promise to my father and you fulfilled that promise through me. I'm just asking for you to do the same thing. And 19 years go by. Now it's possible that Isaac never prayed that until the 19th year. And then all of a sudden she conceived and he thought, I should have prayed earlier. I don't know. We're guessing. But I'm guessing that being the son of, of Abraham, that Isaac was probably praying for that result for a long time and didn't get it for 20 years. People of God, I just want you to put a little note in your head. If you're taking notes in your, in your Bible, just go, you know what? Sometimes the blessing of God and the promise of God does not preclude difficulty or obstacle or grief or sorrow. It's only sort of our modern American culture that said, hey, if you do the right stuff, then everything's going to turn out great for you. That is not the message of the Bible. Now, long-term, God's purpose will be fulfilled. And if nothing else, that's the message of Genesis 25. But we see here early in the story of Isaac and Rebekah that they got married, they did all the right stuff, they got married, and it seems like everything should have just clicked and fallen into place. And for 20 years, they had no descendants. Now, I do love the fact that it teaches us that Isaac prayed that he prayed and God answered. There's a good note for us as well. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you wish would happen in your life differently than it's happening today. I don't know the places where even though you've put your faith in Christ and even though you worship him on a regular basis and even though you're trying to live a life that reveals him to others, maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're facing obstacles. Maybe you have big question marks in your life. Maybe you lost your job or maybe you've got a, a diagnosis you don't like or maybe relationships are falling apart. I don't, I don't know what the obstacles are in your life. But what we see in Isaac's life is that one of the ways in which he responded to the difficulty was to pray, to seek God in it. Say, God, will you intervene? The blessing of God was already upon him, just as the blessing of God is already upon those of us who are his followers. And yet there is an opportunity to come afresh to God and say, what about this? What about that? This, this is one of the reasons why we are blessed to have access to God in prayer. So it says, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The sentiment there of her response, by the way, this idea of the children struggling. Remember, Moses is writing the book of Genesis to the people of Israel who are about to walk into the promised land, right? So he's writing this history so that they will have a sense of some of the people they're going to come into contact with. The Midianites, for instance, the Edomites, they're going to come into contact with some of these people when they get into the promised land. Moses is giving them a history, but he's also trying to teach them some broader principles. And one of the things he's trying to show them from the outset is that struggle was a part of the life of Jacob and Esau from the get-go, before they were born. So when it says here that they struggled together, that might just seem like, you know, if you've, if you've ever been around a pregnant woman and you felt the baby kick, you might go, oh, that's kind of cute. The baby's kicking. That's not what's being described here. The, the literal language is the idea of the children mashing themselves together and fighting in the womb. This is a, a painful thing that's happening for her. So she ends up with the sentiment essentially saying, we, we, we were hoping to get pregnant and now I am pregnant and I'm not sure if I want to be pregnant, right? When she says, if it is thus, this is her response, 
If it is thus, why is this happening to me? That's a really hard word in the, or phrase in the original language to translate to English. But the sentiment is, I'm not sure I want to be pregnant now that this is going on. If it's going to be like this, I'm not sure I want it, right? She's struggling with the pain and the fact that it's not going, again, the way she planned. These children are struggling within her. So she went to inquire of the Lord. First, we see that Isaac prays to God and asks for relief, and God answers the prayer in the midst of the obstacle. Now we see that in the midst of her pain and her confusion and her questions, she inquires of the Lord. Now, different theologians have different ideas of what this means. They're at Bir Lahai Roy, which is the same place where Hagar inquired of the Lord. It's possible because Father Abraham is still alive at this point that she went to talk to Abraham. And that the prophecy she receives from the Lord comes through Abraham. It's possible also that God spoke directly to her. We don't know. But her response in the questions and the struggle she has about this pregnancy, she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord spoke to her. Verse 23. And we see a prophecy here, an oracle. This is what the Lord revealed to her. He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's probably worth just stopping for a second to say something about the nature of pregnancy here, right? To say something about the nature of life in the womb. Even when it's difficult, even when the babies are mashing themselves together, and in the midst of the struggle you go, do I even want this if it's going to be like it is? We live in a world in which it's become increasingly convenient to get rid of pregnancies, right? And I don't want to turn this into a political speech at all, but I do want to say that we believe life happens before birth. That we believe that God, clearly out of Genesis 25 and other places, fashions and forms children in the womb and that he knows them and that he cares about them, that he has a purpose and a plan for them. And because God cares about them and has a purpose for them, because he knows them and loves them and has an intention for their life, just like he has for all of us who are born, we also should care about those children, pre-born, formed by God with purpose, right? We should care about that. And there are all kinds of different political things and there are all kinds of different things you can read and whatever. I don't, I don't want to get in the deal of that. But what I do want to say is this. God's people should care about God's people. And the unborn are God's people. Right? The unborn are God's people. We should care about them. God comes to her. It's worth noting, too, that in this oracle, I want to be really careful here in a distinction. It sometimes is taken, uh, when we combine what God says in Genesis 25, 23, with what is said in Romans 9, and what is said in Malachi. In Malachi, by the way, the prophet Malachi says, hey, you know what? We see, and this is much later, much later in Israel's history, there is an ongoing struggle between the people of Israel and the people of Edom, which means red. Those are the descendants of Esau. And in that ongoing struggle in Malachi chapter 1, he says, well, you know, from the get-go, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And so it doesn't matter what the Edomites try and do. You can read this in the very first verses of Malachi 1 if you want. doesn't matter what the Edomites try and do. They're going to be thwarted. They try and build up their cities. God's going to take them down, right? I want to be really careful here and help you understand that what this is saying is talking about nations. He's not talking about specifically hating the baby Esau, right? So even in Malachi 1, when it says God loves Jacob and hates Esau, that isn't hatred like we think about hatred. Like you hate the guy who comes and brings his dog over and lets it poop on your grass, right? It's not the same thing, right? God doesn't hate anybody. When it's talking in the Bible, remember when Jesus says that you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father? Jesus isn't saying you've got to despise your mother and father. What he's saying is you have to prefer the kingdom of God over the kingdom of your own natural relations, right? 
And what it's saying in Malachi and in Romans is that God has a divine purpose and there are people sometimes who fall outside of that. That there are people. He says here, one nation will serve the other. One nation will be stronger than the other. He gives her this prediction. He says they're struggling now. They're always going to struggle. There will always be a struggle, right? And the younger, he says, will be served by the older. There's a a prophetic statement here. God actually says to her in advance, the way this is going to go is different than the way tradition would say. Tradition would say, by the way, that there is a birthright for the firstborn. That the firstborn gets the greater share of the inheritance. That the firstborn gets the greater share of all the wealth and the prosperity of the father. That the firstborn gets that. By the way, that idea of the firstborn inheriting more, it is found in Scripture in Deuteronomy, but not until much later than this, right? And that idea is still just one of regular tradition. This is one more place in which God says, I have a purpose with the children that are in your womb. I have a purpose with my people, and it's different than what tradition would say. Tradition would say Esau, who's going to be born first, would be the child of promise. But in the same way that Ishmael, who was born first, was not the child of promise, the firstborn of your twins is not going to be the one through whom my covenant passes. It's going to pass through the younger. And that won't just be true of those two individuals. That will be true of the peoples that come from them. You have two nations in your womb. You have two peoples in your womb, right? And the older will serve the younger. So God gives her this glimpse into his purposes for the future. What we understand from this is that the struggle started early. The struggle started early and God determined that Jacob's descendants would be his people. That's not traditional. It's not instinctive. It's not what the culture would have dictated. It's also not earned. It's not deserved, right? This decision by God to favor the younger, the younger son in the womb, Jacob. This decision by God is not based on the fact that Jacob in the womb was a better baby or that he was a better embryo or that he was somehow more favorable. What we're seeing is a depiction early in the scripture of God's grace bestowed because it's grace. God's divine choice and God's divine will not based on any merit or any work. It's not that one baby was better than the other. It's not that one baby did better things or had better thoughts or was better formed or whatever. This is God making his choice, which he can make because he's the creator of all things. So what we see here is an articulation of God's grace. The idea of birthright is not a God-given principle. And there are many times in the Bible and in our own lives where what God chooses to do and what God has called us to do goes against common thinking or goes against tradition or goes against the way that would be instinctive to us or that would make sense to other people. We are a merit-based society. And whether we like it or not, we bring that merit-based perception into our pursuit of faith and into our pursuit of holiness. We come to with the idea that God shows favor on those who do good or look good or who say good things. But that isn't the way of the Bible and it isn't the way of grace. God bestows grace on people who don't deserve it and who can't earn it. That's the very message of Scripture from the beginning to the end, most clearly articulated in the person of Christ. Just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like David who was ruddy, just like Mary who was unmarried, God throughout Scripture uses the unlikely. He loves to use the weak to show himself strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God's plan is to bestow grace on people. God's plan is to not award you based on your own merit, but based on his great love for you. And what that does is it turns you loose of having to strive or having to achieve or having to compare yourself with other people or having to constantly look in the mirror and wonder if you're good enough or wonder if you're smart enough or wonder if you're godly enough or wonder if you're holy enough or worse even still compare yourself to other people and go, well, as long as I'm a little bit godlier than them or a little more righteous than them or a little more holy than them, God's got to give me some kind of credit for that. I want us to turn loose of all of it. Because the favor of God is not based on the contrast and comparison with other people. It's based upon the goodness and the mercy of God. And that's it. So that we can turn loose of our striving. There is a struggle here in the womb. Back to Genesis 25. And she feels it. And he says, yeah, it's starting now. It's going to continue forever. We live in a world of struggle, don't we? We live in a world where people are constantly struggling. And for Jacob and Esau, who are both true characters, but also symbolic of the struggle of men, the struggle happens in the womb. It happens on the way out of the womb. Look at this, 24. When her days uh, were to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy or red, depending on how the word sounds. By the way, can I just say that sounds like a gross baby. Have you ever had that thing? Uh, have you ever had that thing where you, where like somebody has a baby and you go to see it and it's not cute? Isn't that the worst? That's a hard thing, right? If you went to see Rebecca's baby and she's like, what do you think? And you're like, it looks a little bit like a monkey. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's got hair all over its body. It's kind of a weird baby. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called, him, they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The word, the name Jacob means, um, it can mean heal in some ways, or it also means sort of grasping. But from the beginning, we see a struggle in the womb. Now there's a symbolic struggle. Even as the first baby comes out, the second baby is clutching onto his heel, right? There's a picture of an ongoing grasping or an ongoing struggle. And we still feel that today. What is the struggle related to? We'll see an example of that here in just a second. But what we see is that there's this striving for advantage, this striving for gain. When the boys grew up, verse 27, oh, excuse me, let, let's back up just a second here. It's, yeah, in 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. As we've already talked about this morning, I don't think Abraham's without his flaws. I don't think Ishmael's without his flaws. I don't think there's a singular Bible character who's without his or her flaws. And even here in this story, after God has said, hey, you know what? There is this struggle, but here's what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. There's still favoritism. We're going to see that show up again later when we get to chapter 27. But here in 25, I got to tell you, this isn't a justification for you as a parent to have a favorite child, right? You don't look at it and go, well, you know, Isaac loved Esau because they shared a common interest in hunted game. And so I also love Hank better because he has more funny stories to tell, right? No, we don't, we don't get to make these kinds of choices. And I would say this uh, affection, this favoritism plays into some of the ongoing struggle. Their ability to choose favorites or their, their decision to make favorites, I think adds to some of this drama. It says in 29, it gives us this uh, 
this demonstration of the ongoing struggle. In 29, it says, Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red, and and is how we get the Edomites later in Malachi and ongoing. It says in 31, Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The the story is doing something to demonstrate the character of the two men. And it's interesting because when we think about Esau and Jacob, if you have any sort of church history or you've studied this before, we tend to think of Esau as someone who is rash and impetuous. He comes back from the hunt, right? And he's hungry and he's tired. And his brother, his brother uh, Jacob has some uh, lentil stew, basically. It's red stew cooking on the stove. And he walks in and he says, I'm so tired. I think I'm going to die, right? It's unlikely that Esau was about to die. It's, it's likely that this is an exaggeration based on his fatigue. But he says, give me some of that red stuff. Literally, that's the translation. Give me some of the red stuff you got cooking there because I'm going to die. And Jacob is quick in his response. It gives us a sense that he has probably planned this in advance. And he says, well, I'll, get, I'll give you some of this stew, but you've got to give me your birthright. Birthright, by the way, again, in this culture, it's a cultural thing at this point. Birthright is the greater portion of the inheritance, Right? Birthright is the status of the firstborn and its privileges. Now, here's one thing I would want to throw into the mix. It's easy for us to look at Esau and say, well, he's rash and impetuous. He comes in and he trades something uh, sort of eternal for something temporal. He gives away the birthright, which is his by right of being born first, right? This greater portion. He, he trades it away without thinking about it because he wants something temporal. And we can build a whole sermon out of that, right? We can build a whole sermon about sort of uh, valuing the temporal, the pleasure of the moment or the satisfaction of the moment rather than that which is eternal. It appears here that he's rash and impetuous and that he's driven by his appetites. I've heard people teach messages out of Genesis 25 where they go, hey, be wary of being driven by your appetites. Look at Esau. I would just want to caution you that Jacob in this text is also driven by his appetites. He's hungry for different things. But he's also driven by his appetites. So the, the point here is not don't be driven by your appetites because we're all driven by our appetites. The point for us as followers of Jesus is, what are you hungry for? Because if you're hungry for some sort of temporal satisfaction, then yes, you will will absolutely sell away the future for what you can get in the moment, right? But sometimes if what you're hungry for is something more long-term, what you end up doing is being calculated, right? Being tricky, being clever. Uh, Jacob in this text has worked up this scheme in order to get a thing. Now, here's what I don't know too. I don't know whether Jacob and Esau had heard the oracle of God that we see in chapter 23. I don't know whether or not in, in the years that they were growing up, their mother had said to them, hey, when you were born, you guys used to fight all the time and it hurt. And I went and saw God and he said to me that, you know, Esau, you're going to serve Jacob. It's possible if they're aware of the oracle, it's possible that Esau, as he's standing at the table looking for the stew, is going, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? The birthright to me. God already said, I'm going to serve you, so just give me something to eat. It's possible that in looking at what God had already said, that he sort of loses his desire to to live wisely in the present. It's also possible that Jacob, having heard the oracle, is trying to make that thing happen rather than resting in what God has said would occur. Does that make sense? So that Jacob hears the thing and says, oh, he's going to serve me. Well, I got to figure out how to get that to go down. And so then Jacob starts to strive and he starts to come up with a plot. By the time we get to Genesis 27, we'll see a much greater plot for accomplishing this thing. 
Neither of them needed to strive to accomplish the thing that God had said would occur. Nor do we need to strive to accomplish what God has said will come to pass. The writer of the Hebrews gives us a warning, in fact, about this mindset. It says in Hebrews 12, which is about the discipline of God, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Just as a side note, the revelation of God is one of our purposes. We talk around here about Christ being revealed to us and in us and by us. The radiant peace and revolutionary kindness and prophetic engagement. Here it says, no one sees the Lord without us striving for peace and holiness. That is how the Lord is revealed, right? There it is in in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The writer of the Hebrews refers to Esau as unholy, that he, in essence, and it says this in Genesis, that he despised his birthright, that he didn't give it the value it deserves. Can I say that for you and I who are followers of Christ, we have an incredible inheritance. We've been adopted, daughters and sons of God. Through the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, we have this inheritance. We are his followers, and yet so often, we despise that inheritance. We forget that we're called to be ambassadors. That we're meant to be revealing Christ as his children because what? Because we're hungry for what we're hungry for in the moment. And we set aside that inheritance. We set aside that responsibility, that birthright, and the obligations that come with it because we just want what we want in the moment. Esau blows it, certainly, in this text, in Genesis 25. But Jacob isn't blameless either. He could have blessed his weak, tired, careless brother, but instead he manipulates the situation for personal gain. I was thinking this week about even a passage like Proverbs twenty five twenty one, which says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. It wouldn't have been that hard for Esau to have come in and said, I'm famished, I've had a hard day hunting, I haven't caught anything, I think I'm going to die. And for Jacob to have been like, here's some stew, I've already been cooking it. God bless you, right? Why? Because Jacob didn't have to scheme. He didn't have to plot. God had already said things were going to turn out the way they were going to turn out. He does that because of his own selfishness and in some ways because of his, his own hunger as well, his own appetites. You guys, we can look at every character in this story and every story and recognize that none are worthy. That, that maybe bothers you. Maybe you look at Genesis 25 and you desperately want Jacob to seem like the hero. If that's the case, you're only going to be more disappointed as we get further in, right? Maybe you desperately want Esau to just, just settle down. Think straight. You just want him to be a good guy. Maybe you just want Isaac not to show favoritism. Maybe you just want Rebecca not to plot and scheme. Maybe you want these people just to be awesome. And they're not. And the rub of that maybe really bothers you, Right? Because God said, I'm, I'm going to bless Jacob. And my, my covenant with Abraham is going to go from Abraham to Isaac into Jacob. And you look at it and go, but why? Jacob doesn't seem great. He doesn't seem like he deserves it. He doesn't seem like he earned it. He doesn't seem like he's worthy. Can't we just have one other brother in the story who's like awesome and God lets it go through him? No, that, that's the point here. There isn't anybody in the story who's worthy. They're all unworthy. And before you let that get you sad... 
I'll remind you again that I'm not worthy either. That you're not worthy either. The moment that you and I start insisting that the blessing of God be distributed to those who are worthy is the moment that we have precluded ourselves from receiving the blessing of God. Does that make sense? The moment that you start to insist that God love and bless and allow the sun to rise and fall on those who deserve it is the moment you've just eliminated yourself from contention for the blessing of God. But as long as in humble solidarity, you can embrace revolutionary kindness that says, no, the grace of God is not based on goodness or badness. It's not based upon human tradition, what order you were born in or what nation you were born into. By the time we get to Romans 9, the argument that Paul's making there is, it's not enough to just be born into the nation of Israel. It's not enough to be born into the nation of Israel, right? It has to do with faith. It has to do with faith. We come to Romans chapter 10, in fact. By the time we get to Romans 10, verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on him, uh, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. We could say there's no distinction between hairy and smooth. There's no distinction between hunter and homebody. There's no distinction between firstborn and secondborn. There's no distinction between anything. It is God's grace upon those who call upon him in faith. That's the argument that Paul's making in Romans. He points back at the story. And he says, this is about God's sovereign grace. It's not about our merit. It's not about what we earn. So when you're tempted to look at the story like I am and you go, man, everybody in this looks crummy, allow that to to set you free. Allow it to set you free. You see, we still operate as if we must or can earn God's favor. We operate as if there are really good people who deserve God's love and really bad people who don't. And that's not a biblical principle. The, The Bible teaches the opposite of that. Here's the bottom line for us this morning. God's purpose will be accomplished. God's purpose will be accomplished. And you and I can find blessing in the midst of struggle by aligning with God's purpose as best we can at any given moment. By aligning with God's purpose as best we can. Both of these brothers could have just chilled out and been kind to each other. They could have just chilled out and been generous to each other. They could have just chilled out and enjoyed what it looks like to be family. But instead they're both plotting and scheming and their struggle and heel grasping and whatever. Because we just can't trust the providence of God. But, but we can. How do we trust in God's purpose? Well, by inquiring of God and calling out to him. Just like Isaac does. Just like Rebecca does at the beginning of this. By valuing the right things and setting aside our own selfish ambitions and preferences. We talk about unity and sacrifice around here. We find peace in the midst of the ongoing struggle by trusting that God's plan is good even when we don't get it. Because I think for us, we would go, oh, if Isaac is the child of promise and now he's got his wife, they should have a bunch of kids. They should have way more kids than Ishmael. But that's not how God did it. That's not how he organized it. And we should rest in the fact that he knows better than we do. That our logic and our rhythm doesn't matter. That his logic is what matters. That we trust that God's plan is good even when we don't get it. And we also find peace by recognizing that every revelation of God to us, in us, and by us is only by way of his perfect grace. Not what order you're born. Not who else likes you. Not what church you go to. Not what good things or bad things you've done. 
No, we live a life of faithfulness because he has saved us by his grace. I'll finish with this last verse in Hebrews chapter 12 at the end of the section where he talks about living a life in alignment with the discipline of God and trying to perfect you. In verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I love this passage. It basically says, look, God's kingdom is unshakable. It's unchangeable. You're not going to turn God around. You're not going to change his mind. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And his purpose will be accomplished. And he doesn't need your striving. And he doesn't need your struggling to accomplish his plan. So knowing that we have the ability to approach this unshakable kingdom, we turn loose of all our plans. And what do we do? Well, it says earlier in 12 that we strive for peace with one another. And we strive for holiness without which no one sees the Lord. Our role is to trust in the perfect plan of God, to love one another, and to strive for holiness, to live a life that reflects Christ so that others can see him as well. I get that in your life today, things might not be going the way you want. You may have been praying for 20 years to receive certain things or answers that you haven't seen. Understand that God's purpose will be accomplished and his purpose is good. That his love and his grace are for you, even with your mistakes and your flaws. Turn loose of that part of you that wants to earn it or achieve it and embrace the grace of God for you this morning and his good plan. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us again this week a heart of trust in you that we would turn loose of the judgmentalism as we look at other people, that even as we look at Jacob and Esau, we would recognize it's so easy to go, well, that guy's crummy or this guy's crummy, and instead just go, yeah, so is everybody. All of us get it right sometime, and all of us get it wrong sometime, and yet it is our, our joy and our blessing to align with your purpose, to align with your purpose as best we know how in any given moment and time, for the sake of your glory and the good of others. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.